Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16 this morning, and this is God's word, and before we do read it, let's again pray and ask him to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Father in heaven, you are the God who has given your word, and you have exalted your word far above even your name, and you have promised that by the uh, reception of your word and the implanting of your word, you save our souls, you lead us to the Savior who is the living word, and we would not come this morning seeking for eternal life in the scriptures apart from seeking it in the one who is himself the eternal life. And so, our Father, we pray that you would lead us to Christ. We pray that you would renew our minds in the knowledge of your Son and all his perfections. Father, we pray that you would transform us. We pray that there would be salvations among us for those that have never come to you and those who maybe have sat under your word for many years. We pray that there would be sanctification for those who are in Christ. And so, our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 16, you'll find that on page 11 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. This is God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. This is showtime. This is not focused on the family. Go into Hagar and... Here's a great idea. Maybe I'll get children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, or you are God who sees. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who literally sees me. Therefore, the well was called Behir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael 
to Abram. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that has often perplexed me and probably even troubled me the longer I have been a Christian and the longer I've been in ministry is to see the way that so many start off um, both as believers and also as pastors, especially as I, I consider ministers in the church. And they start off um, believing the word. They start off believing the promises. They start off with biblical ministries. They start off with what seem to be fervent Christian lives. And at some point, it seems that they get impatient. They themselves are not finding fulfillment in Jesus. And they start to go the other way. Their ministries take a 180. I have had many conversations with friends saying, how in the world could this pastor who was over here be over here now? Their lives start to change radically. They take on different, uh, they take on different personas sometimes. People are very complex. And it's always troubled me and it's always worried me because I know that it could happen to me. I know that it could happen to any of you, that at any point, sort of an impatience, sort of a, a lack of perseverance, a lack of putting ourselves under the word of God, under the promises of God, sitting at the feet of Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, running that race. We grow weary, we grow tired, and we try new things, and we, we scheme and devise, and we're trying to find fulfillment in other things. And it is a very real danger in the church. And it is a, a recurring event in the lives of believers and even in the lives of ministers. And I think it's interesting as we have been working through the Abraham narrative, we have seen the trials that Abram has faced. Abram has been called out. God has called him out of Ur. He has separated him to himself. He has given him exceedingly great and precious promises. He has told Abram that the world is going to be blessed in him, that the nations are going to be blessed in him, that he's going to be the father of many nations. Abram, who has no children at 70, at 75, at 80, no children, and yet God has promised him that great nations are going to come from him. And God has given Abram these great promises, and he has called Abram to follow him. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us he didn't know where he was going. He was living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. The vast part of his life is God is progressively bringing him along. And Abram is hitting trials along the way, and we've seen as we've looked at this account that Abram is stumbling even as he is seeking to follow the God of promise. He stumbles when the famine comes and he decides it's better to go down to the fruitful land of Egypt. He stumbles there in Egypt when he decides that it's a good idea to give his wife over to preserve his own life. He stumbles in a very real sense. He stumbles in chapter 15 when after God has already blessed him by sending Melchizedek, that great king priest of Salem, that type of Jesus Christ, to bless Abram and to assure him that he is blessed of God most high, he stumbles and he doubts and he fears and he says to the Lord, how do I know? How do I know you're going to give me this? How do I know that it's been worth it? How do I know that, that following you for 10 years without seeing you fulfill these promises is worth it? And God has been so gracious, even as Abram stumbles, as he trips along the way, as he makes foolish decisions, God has been so gracious and has restored him time and time and time again with his word and his promises and with uh, even ceremonies and symbolic acts and showing him the stars. God is in every way making use of all these different things to strengthen Abraham, to encourage him and to press him on as the great man of faith. And yet we come to chapter 16 and 
We ought to be surprised when we come to chapter 16. While we know this story, many of us have heard this story since we were young, and we know that it happens when you look at how God has been dealing with Abram and Sarai all along the way. There's something about Genesis 16 that ought to surprise us. Now, we haven't heard about Sarai since the time that Abram decided it was a good idea to hand her off to the king of Egypt. We haven't heard anything about Sarai, but what we know about Sarai at this point, the one thing that we do know is that Sarai has followed her husband in following the God of promise for 10 years. That's the one thing we know. She stuck it out. She was a great woman of faith. In fact, so great a woman of faith that the apostle Peter will tell us that Christian women ought to take their cue from Sarai, who followed her husband as they followed the Lord together as co-heirs of the grace of life. And yet, here is Sarai, growing impatient, doing what you wouldn't expect her to do. It was common in uh, the ancient Near East for women to, who were barren, and barrenness was viewed as a great curse. It, it felt like a curse to women, especially in the Old Testament, as God had promised fruitfulness and a redeemer to come, and barrenness weighed heavy, and God makes great use of the idea of barrenness, and then God supernaturally bringing life out of, out of a, a barren wilderness, as it were, to show that he is the God of supernatural grace and power, and yet, and yet Sarai uh, does what other women would have done in the ancient Near East, and she doesn't act as a great woman of faith. She grows impatient. We're going to see this morning um, two things. First, we're going to see the impatience uh, with regard to God's promise fueling foolishness, and secondly, we're going to see God's mercy following our foolishness. Now notice that in, in verse 1, we're told, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, Sarai is doing something very important. She is not just walking in unbelief. She is not simply acting like the unbelievers in the land of Canaan with whom she dwelt. She is still calculating that God had promised She and Abram, these great promises, God had said through you, the nations are going to be blessed. We don't know if God said through you and Sarai, but the assumption is that Abram understood that. Sarai understood that. Sarai understood that God's promises were dependent on her having a child. She understood that if there's no son, there's no redeemer. If there's no redeemer, there's no salvation. And all of God's promises fail. Sarai understood that everything God had promised was in some sense, to some degree, she understood it was dependent on her having a child. And notice that Moses tells us, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And, verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, very interesting. Um, On one hand, we can say what Sarai is saying is right and true, and she's acknowledging that unless the Lord opens the womb, that it's in vain. She's acknowledging that God is the one who gives life. She's acknowledging, she's not saying, well, Abram, we haven't tried this option or that option or this option to get children. And, you know, for whatever reason, we're just not making it happen. She doesn't say that. She says the Lord has prevented me from having children. She's acknowledging God's sovereign hand in knitting life together in the womb. And in that sense, she is to be um, seen as an example of a woman walking by faith. On the other hand, Sarai is growing impatient, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. 
And in a very real sense, this is sort of a tragic recapitulation of what we find in chapter 3 of Genesis. Sarai is questioning the goodness of God. She's questioning the promise of God. She's questioning the word of God. She decides, I will take matters into my own hands. I will interpret how the promise of God comes to pass. The Lord is not as good as the Lord has told us he is. There is a very real sense where she, like Eve, is questioning the goodness of God. And and I want to say this this morning. At ground zero... Of all of our spiritual problems, at ground zero, is the fact that we question the goodness of God. You show me a man or a woman who is not walking closely with the Lord, who is not committed to worshiping the Lord, who is not committing their life to the Lord, and I will show you a man or a woman that do not believe that God is good. At At ground zero, that what Satan tempted our first parents with is to question the goodness of God and to say, surely God is not that good. While he has said you can have these trees, surely he wants to withhold his goodness from you. And the second we start to think God is withholding goodness, the second we start to think of God as a uh, harsh taskmaster who wants to just be cruel and vindictive and that is not full of goodness and bounty, is the second that we start trying to take matters into our own hands. And Eve does that. And Sarai does that, and notice that Sarai begins to scheme. She has an idea. Here's a way to fulfill the promises in human effort, in the flesh. Here's a way for us to get children and to get a child. Now, to understand this, you have to also understand that there's, a, there's sort of a theology running through the book of Genesis that the rest of the scripture starts to open up, and that is a theology of the life in the flesh or the life by faith in the promises of God, that there are only two ways. There are only two paths. Everyone who is seeking to worship God is either seeking to do it in human strength, in their own self-righteousness, or they are seeking to rest in the fact that God has promised to redeem a people merely by his grace to make those who were not fruitful, those who were barren, those who were living in a wilderness of sin, fruitful by his grace in Jesus Christ, merely by faith in Jesus. Those are the two paths. And Sarai knows that Hagar is from Egypt. Now, Very interesting, if you're reading the Genesis narrative, Egypt finds this prevalent place, and especially in the Abraham narrative. We were first told that when there was a famine, Abraham went down to Egypt. There was a famine, and Abraham said, Egypt is fruitful, we'll go to Egypt. When Abram came out with great possessions, including Hagar, when he came out of Egypt, and and God blessed him again, and as As his herds grew and Lot's herds grew and their herdsmen had strife and Abram said, you go left, I'll go right, you go right, I'll go left. And and Lot said, he lifted his eyes and he saw and he looked and he saw Sodom and Gomorrah and and Moses makes the point of telling us that it was well watered like the garden of God, like Egypt. So famine, Abraham goes to Egypt, Egypt is fruitful. Sodom and Gomorrah are likened to the fruitfulness of the garden and to the fruitfulness of Egypt. And now we're told that Hagar is seen and understood to be the fruitful option as over against the barren wilderness, against the famine 
that Sarai felt herself in. Now, here's the point of that, because you might say, okay, that's clever, that's tricky, I see what you're doing. Here's the point. Every time you try to do it your way, every time you try to fulfill the promises of God in your own strength, every time you try to live your life in your own strength in the arm of flesh, you are essentially saying, here is a fruitful thing over here, and I'm going to go get that fruitfulness for myself. And this is barren over here, and God says, oh, watch me make this fruitful and see how barren that will become. That is exactly what's going on. God is juxtaposing for us the idea that every time we grow impatient, we grow tired. You know, people get tired of going to church. Why do people just stop going to church? It's for the life of me. We talk about that as a session. People just stop going to church. You know why? Because they say that's barren, that's fruitful. They say, I want the fruitfulness over there. I don't want the barren wasteland over here. Because they don't see the fruitfulness of waiting on the Lord and worshiping the Lord. And the Bible everywhere is telling us, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Blessed is the one who waits on the Lord, who perseveres in the midst of trial and tribulation and difficulty and doesn't say, I want fruitfulness now. And you know what? Here's the reality. We're all, we all want that. We all want instant gratification. We want instant fruitfulness, instant blessing, instant security, instant satisfaction, instant seeing that my life matters and God says oh you'll have to wait remember Sarah has been 10 years 10 years waiting no child 10 years not not the smallest intimation that God was fulfilling his promises what a what a passage for us who who so desperately need to persevere in keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who so desperately need to stay close to the cross and close to the Savior and close to communion with the Lord. And in the midst of trials and barrenness and the wilderness of this world and things seeming small and, and empty and despised by the world, what a word for us that we would understand that we would not take matters into our own hands, that we would not act in the flesh. You know, the whole history of Israel, by the way, is is thrown under this figure. I don't know if you know this. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul takes up the Abraham narrative here, this chapter, the Sarai-Hagar distinction, and he basically says, he uses it as a, as a figure, and he says that what the Jews throughout most of their history, and definitely in Jesus' day, were doing was they were trying to turn the Mosaic Covenant and, and the law that God gave into them as a way for them to obtain righteousness, They were constantly ripping it out of the context of grace and saying, I will strive in my own way. And what they were doing, this is so important. What they were doing was saying, here is a more fruitful way than waiting for God when he doesn't seem to fulfill his promises. Here's a fruitful way. I will take matters into my hand. I will get righteousness by what I do. I will be a good person. I will do humanitarian things. I will labor for my own righteousness. I will work to establish my righteousness because that's fruitful and that's barren. And what you have by way of contrast is a little remnant of people throughout Israel's history. And they're just waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And then you find them waiting in Luke chapter 2 when God begins to fulfill that promise after thousands of years. He's bringing Christ into the world. And there's Anna, the old prophetess. And there's Simeon, the old man who had spent his entire life waiting. And I love the way Simeon responds when he finally gets to hold the baby Jesus. He says, 
Now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He waited. He waited his whole life to see Christ. And he saw in that baby, not uh, a peasant baby that looked like the barren wilderness to everybody else, born to a poor peasant woman, no castle, no, but nobody around him thronging him, singing his praises, a poor beggar baby. And Luther says he looks past that poor beggar baby and he sees a king, a king that's greater than all the kings of the earth. And he waited. And then they went and they spoke to others who were waiting for redemption in Jerusalem. And so the history of Sarah and Hagar are pregnant that Sarah is the free woman. Hagar is the bond woman. Sarah is acting according to the flesh when she is the mother of promise. She should be waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promises. And then notice Abram. Everybody, by the way, everybody in this chapter is a mess. Absolute mess. Abram's a mess. Sarah's a mess. Hagar's a mess. Nobody's virtuous. Nobody does what's right. Not at one point in this entire chapter does anybody do anything right except God. Oh my, what a word for our lives. Because you are such, so much worse than you know. I am so much worse. Um, notice Abram listens, like Adam listened to Eve. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And we're still cleaning that mess up today. And then notice verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, Sarai has acted foolishly. Abram now has acted foolishly in listening to his wife, which, by the way, I want to point this out. It's very important. On one hand, that means that others can lead us into foolishness that we're very close to, even godly spouses, family members. Um, Abram is led over here away from the Lord to choose what seems fruitful by his wife, um, who has been with him for 10 years. And in one humongous mistake is going to reap those consequences and all of Israel's history is going to. Um, And on the other hand, it means we can lead people astray that we're close to. I think it's good for us to remember both sides of that, that both others can lead us into sin, even those that we have been close to for many years, have worshipped God together with, are, are married to, um, are the parents of, and, and we can be led astray and we can lead others astray. There's a great warning here for us to be on guard and watch. It's a great warning. And notice that Abram has acted foolishly, and now Hagar acts foolishly. Notice verse 4. Abram went into Hagar, she conceives, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, everybody's acting foolishly. Now, Hagar, who was probably a very beautiful woman from Egypt, thinks to herself, I'm better than Sarai. I've conceived Why should she be Abram's wife? I should be Abram's wife. She acts in pride. She takes herself out of her proper role in that respective context. And she acts with contempt towards Sarai. And notice the the tensions and the frustrations. You know, sometimes people say, well, in the Bible, polygamy was never really, um, polygamy was never really condemned by God. And at every point, at every point, of every polygamous relationship in the scripture, there's an absolute disaster following 
at every point, whether it be the 12 tribes and all the tensions and all the fightings of the children of four wives, whether it be Ishmael and Isaac, which we'll see later on, um, repeatedly, there is nothing virtuous about polygamous relationships. And you see, you see the disaster. You see the absolute disaster that it creates in this home. Now there's tension and frustration. Now the home of the family of faith is being rent apart with all kinds of division and frustration. Hagar is hating Sarai. Sarai is jealous of Hagar. Notice verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. She does what Adam and Eve do. They blame shift now. The whole thing is a disaster. It's your fault. You went in to her. You can imagine. Abram was like, well, you told me to. Well, I didn't mean that you should. Well, but you told me to. Well, you shouldn't have done that. Look what happened now. Everybody's laughing because everybody's like, oh, yeah, we've had this. Not, not this conversation, but, <laughs> but that tone. Um, and there is blame shifting. And what you really see in this is you see that our foolishness breeds division and hostility, dispeace, it, it creates tensions. You know, I, I have had these conversations with a couple minister buddies over the last year or two, and, and I understand that misery loves company. I get it. I do. Somebody said to me in here, hurting people want others to hurt. I get it. But for the life of me, I don't understand why anybody would want to make somebody else's life difficult or make their hard life any more difficult than it is. Sin breeds all of the hostility, all the division, all the contention, the pride, the jealousy, um, the foolishness. Notice, may this wrong be done to you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. By the way, another mistake. Abram is essentially telling Sarah, you can even abuse your power over her. Do whatever is necessary. Nothing virtuous about what Sarai and Abram do, about what Hagar did. And notice, notice Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It is sort of a downward spiral, isn't it? It's just like you see in chapter 3 of Genesis, and that's what our sin does. It's a, it's a downward spiral. It affects others' lives. You know, Tim Keller makes a good point. He says um, that all sin is communal. There's no... There's no sin that is individual. There's no sin that you can just do in the closet and nobody know about and have no ramifications on relationships. All of our sin has communal implications. And you see it. You see how the home of the family of faith is being rent apart because of the foolishness and the impatience and them taking matters into their own hands. Notice, though, as... Uh, as Hagar is fleeing now, and she's going back to Egypt. She's going back to fruitfulness. She decides, hey, Egypt is fruitful. By the way, if you're Israel coming out of Egypt, and God is redeeming you from Egypt, and he is giving his word to you through Moses about this, you're understanding that whole Egypt fruitfulness. They're constantly wanting to go back. The food was better. You know, even though they were in bondage, even though it was a terrible place, they're constantly wanting to go back. Hagar now heads back. She is heading back to Egypt, and we see, secondly, how God's mercy follows our foolishness. Notice the rest of the passage is about the interactions between the Lord and between Hagar. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the word of Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I think the first thing that we have to see here 
is that Hagar is not seeking the Lord. Very, very important. She is turning back. She is going back to the world. She's leaving the home of the family of faith. She never once in this passage prays. She never says, Lord, no doubt she heard Abram praying, maybe leading the family and family devotions. Clearly, he was the great man of faith over his house. Sarai knew about the promises. Hagar had to have witnessed that, had to have seen um, them trusting the Lord, calling on the Lord. Nevertheless, she never calls on the Lord. There's no sense whatsoever that Hagar is to be seen as a believer. And yet, as she is fleeing and she has been done this great injustice, here is the Lord coming, and in his mercy, he is pursuing Hagar. And it's unexpected. He's not pursuing Sarai at this point. You would think the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, who is a theophany, it's a, it's a visible manifestation, a pre-incarnation of the Son of God, and, and she'll say she's seen God. He is the God of seeing. She'll call him God. He's not an angel. He's the messenger of Yahweh. He is Jesus. And Jesus is pursuing Hagar. Now, this is wonderful because here's what we learn from this, that in the midst of all the foolishness, all the destruction of sin, all the stumbling of the believer, wanting to take matters into his own hands and her own hands, and, and choose for themselves the fruitful verse waiting for God in the wilderness, what we see is God is not pursuing Sarah at this point. He is pursuing the Gentile Hagar. This is the first time that we see God pursuing a Gentile. God has created the nation of Israel out of Abraham, and here is God in his mercy pursuing a Gentile. You know, one of my friends, Sean Lucas, pointed this out to me, and I would not have seen this. There's an interesting parallel, isn't there? Here's Hagar, a Gentile, sitting at a well, and Jesus comes to her. Very interesting. There's the Samaritan woman sitting at the well in John 4, and Jesus comes to her. She is a woman of disrepute. She has slept with other, um, the, the husbands of other women. She has made a wreck of her life, and Jesus comes to her. When I was a new convert, and I, I'd never heard this phrase. I think I liked it at first, and now I'm sort of tired of it. But um, uh, Mike Cuneo said to me, cause I, and you know my story, and I had been redeemed out of such darkness, and, and I said, you know, God had to come and change my heart because I was not coming to him. I was not going to him. I didn't have the willpower. I couldn't break the power of sin. And he came and he broke it and he pursued me. And Mike said, he's the hound of heaven. He's the hound of heaven. I love the way the hymn writer puts it. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. That is the... That is the story of mercy. God doesn't bring his mercy to those who are doing enough, trying enough. Isn't that fascinating that God comes to the pagan handmaiden who has made a wreck of the household of faith, who could have been upright herself and said, no, we're not going to do this, has caused such division together with Abram and Sarai, and God comes and pursues her at the well in the wilderness. Isn't that fascinating? She's in the wilderness. And he pursues her at the well, and he tells her, go back, return to Sarai. What he is essentially saying to her, I think, is he is saying, I have vouchsafed my promises to these people. 
Go back to the place. Go back Go back where the word is preached. Go back where the gospel is proclaimed. Go back where you'll hear the promises. Go back to the place that, yes, while there may be tensions and strife at times, go back because that is the place where I have promised to bless. Go back, submit yourself to Sarai, go home. And then he promises her, notice verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said, you're pregnant, you'll bear a son, his name will be Ishmael. The Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, a couple things I want to say here. First, um, afflictions are oftentimes some of the greatest mercies of God. Afflictions and trials. Because when your life is falling apart, that is a great kindness from the Lord. If you will go to the Lord to help you in those times of affliction and difficulty. Um, One writer said, Hagar would have known less of herself and less of God if she had not experienced the trouble that she experienced. She would have known less of herself. She would have known less of God. One of the things she learned about the Lord is that God cared for the poor and the needy who had been mistreated. This is the prelude to everything that the Mosaic Law teaches about caring for the afflicted and the needy and the poor and the stranger and those who have been oppressed and all the injustices of life. God cares. God cares so much that even when people don't go to him, he still hears their affliction. He knows all of the affliction that that men and women feel in this life. He is the God who sees and knows everything. He knows all the griefs of your heart. He knows all the afflictions. He knows all the struggles, all the sin, all the trials, all the misery, everything. And you know what? I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort in the fact that when we feel afflicted um, with health needs or we feel afflicted because of the guilt of our sin that we so hate, that God takes note of that. Now, I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus, the God-man, the angel of the covenant, the messenger of the Lord, is both fully God and fully man. And as B.B. Warfield says, that means we can rest in his almighty arms because he's God, but we can know that he sympathized with us in all of our weakness because he was fully man, tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. We have such a perfect Savior who knows us. And you see the character of the Lord Jesus coming, both the omniscience of God and the compassion and the mercy of God coming. Now, we don't know if Hagar is converted. I think it's actually quite arguable that she wasn't at this point. And and what that tells us is that we ought never miss an opportunity when the Lord comes in his kindness and compassion to us, when he speaks to us from his word, when he warns us in the scripture, when we feel convicted of sin, when we realize we need to be going to him, we ought to go right at that moment. We should fall to our knees and we should say, Lord, have mercy on me. I had to check myself at our Thanksgiving dinner. I told you there is never a place in the gospels where somebody who asks for mercy of Jesus doesn't get it. I had to go back and check and see if I was right about that. There is not one place in the gospel records where someone who cries out, Lord, have mercy, does not get that mercy from Jesus. That is wonderful. That should stir up in us the greatest confidence that if he would come and pursue us in our foolishness, if he would lay down his life because of our foolishness. Now, um, 
Sinclair Ferguson reflecting on um, Jesus in the storm with the disciples and, and um, them saying, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that we're perishing? And he says, he was in the world because he cared. He was on the boat because he cared. And he would hang on the cross because he cared. And that's really what we're seeing in Genesis 16 is that God is the merciful one, that he is the one who cares for us even in our foolishness. He wants us to turn to him. He wants us to turn from our foolishness. He is extending promises of mercy and grace constantly to his people. And he's saying, come to me. Come and I'll heal you. Come. Buy without money, without price. Come in the midst of you've ruined your life. Come and I'll, I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you. I've taken your sin on myself. Come. And notice the Lord gives to Hagar these promises because she is in Abram's house, uh, because he has been blessed and nations will come to him. He tells her that this child is going to be special in a very real sense. Now, for you and me, we would read this and we would say, okay, it doesn't seem very merciful that God says your son is going to be really powerful. He's going to try to oppress everybody else for freedom and he's going to, be, he's going to break away from everybody. And he's going to be a wild donkey man. I really wrestled with this because every commentator says, this is a blessing. Your son is going to be reprobate. It's going to cause all kinds of problems throughout all of redemptive history. It's going to create all kinds of problems through human history. It's going to sort of be a counterfeit nation to the church, really a manifestation of Satan's kingdom. He's going to have 12 princes come from him, 12 tribes come from Isaac. And um, it's going to be a disaster and nobody's going to be able to tame him. But he's going to love freedom. <laughs> and yet, there is a very real sense in which what God is telling Hagar is that there are still common grace blessings that come to people. And those things should have stirred her up to seek the Lord. Those things should have stirred her up to call on the name of the Lord, that we don't despise the common blessings that God gives us in this life. Notice she doesn't despise it. Verse 13, she calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God who sees, for she said, truly I have seen him who sees me. Now, this is marvelous. I'm going to close with this. Um, the Puritans used to love to take that statement and to, to drive it through the lens of salvation because what is true for every one of us is that we can't see God with the eyes of faith until he has seen us, until he has taken account of us, until he has come to us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign in his mercy. Hagar recognizes she didn't know God. She says, you are God who has seen me. You are God who sees me, and now I see you. Now I see your works. Now I see your ways. Now I see your character. Now I see more of who you are. There's a beautiful picture there. And God is manifesting his glory. Now that's the beauty. Foolishness, sin, depravity, uh, all kinds of problems and chaos in the home. And God comes, and he comforts with the knowledge of who he is. And in that sense, he is drawing us away from our foolishness. And he is saying, look to me, all the ends of the earth be saved. I am God who sees. I see you in your sin. I see you in your affliction. I have dealt with your sin. I have taken that affliction upon myself. And what a God. There's no other God that anyone has ever had that is like the true and the living God. What a God that we would go to him, that we would receive from his hand 
the mercy he gives us in our foolishness. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you to see us so that we can see you and see your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you'd have mercy on us. We have many times acted in great foolishness and choosing the world over waiting on you and waiting on you to fulfill your promises. And Lord, we are weak and we are needy and we acknowledge that we need your grace and your mercy today in our lives. And so, our Father, we pray that you would manifest that in our lives, that you would show us that in Jesus Christ is all the grace and mercy that we need, and that he comes to satisfy us and to heal us and to redeem us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do a work of redemption in the lives of every man and woman and boy and girl present here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.